Amen and amen. You can be seated. Glad you're here today. We are, uh, it's a big, big, big moment. Uh, we are arriving in Jerusalem in the study of Luke. We're, we're, we're about to arrive at the city. This is a big day. We've been talking about it for weeks. Jesus has been uh, back at 10 chapters ago, really, Luke chapter 9, the end of Luke chapter 9. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and then we walked with him as he proceeded uh, from Galilee and, and took his ministry on the road uh, towards Jerusalem. Today, we're getting there, and, and God has ordained in this moment a, a, an introduction for his son that is compelling. It's, it, it really puts every other introduction to, to shame. Like, I, I don't know if you're, many of you probably have never even heard of Ed McMahon, other than maybe the, the guy who makes people millionaires, you know, the publisher clearinghouse, $10 million sweepstakes, uh, but he was uh, an announcer uh, on The Tonight Show, and he had a famous line, made him famous as he introduced Johnny Carson. You know what it is? Say it. No, come on, say it like he said it. Here's Johnny, right. So, okay, so, so I'm trying to prep you and prime you already. I'm just, just let you know. This, I want this to be somewhat interactive through the day, right? So, so I'm already trying to prep you uh, so that, uh, th- that you'll just know this is... I want this to be interactive because it's important uh, for our topic today. So, so here's Johnny, right? This, this, this entry, this introduction of Jesus puts that to shame. Or, or Michael Buffer, who introduces boxing matches. You know what he says? No, 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 no. Let's say it like he says it. Oh, let's get ready to rumble, right? And the people go nuts. Like they start cheering and it's exciting and, and the crowds are just going crazy because of this boxing match. Well, even this puts that to shame. For many that were present, they were going to be singing the praises of Christ. For many that were present, they were going to be worshiping, full out just worshiping him as king. And shockingly, others would stand there seeking to silence it. And it all hinged on this one thing. Did they know Jesus? Not just did they have information about Jesus, like an, a, a list of facts, but as you'll see as it plays out, did they know him? And truly, is as important as a hinge as it was for them in that moment, it's a hinge for every one of us in our day-to-day life. Do we know Jesus? Like, not, not I can list a bunch of attributes about him. I can, I've heard about him enough that I've got this list of facts that I mean, if that's how we related to one another, right, that's not, uh, that's not knowing each other. That, you, you can know about somebody and never know them. Do we know him? Do, you, you know, certainly, can, can, do we know him well enough that we, we can list the facts? Do we know him and have we interacted with him so that we have the systematic theology and the Christology built out? Can, do, we, do we know him so well that we know about him with intimacy, personal experience? Do we know him. In a sermon from Luke 15, John Piper says this, consider Jesus, know Jesus, learn what kind of person it is that you say you trust and love and worship. Soak in the shadow of Jesus. Saturate your soul with the ways of Jesus. Watch him, listen to him, stand in awe of him. Let him overwhelm you. But the way he is. You see, this is, this is the reason that Luke wrote this gospel. If you think back all the way to the opening pages of Luke's or the opening verses of Luke's gospel account, it's that he wanted Theophilus to be 
confident in what he had been taught. He wanted Theophilus to be confident, to be certain in what he knew about Jesus. So that he would know he knows Jesus. As we read and have studied, this has been the point to always press us into this place where we see Jesus. The sad truth is, the sad truth is that people in this world today, in, in our time, in our day, know very little, if anything, about Jesus. In fact, there was a study done by Lifeway, and uh, it was for Ligonier Ministries, and it was performed by Lifeway, a study done just last year that demonstrates that the vast, the vast uh, majority of evangelical Christians are inadvertent heretics. We're not talking about outside the church. We're just talking about the church. We're not talking about some loose or, or small uh, understanding of what the church might be. They, they use specific questions to determine whether people were evangelical Christians or, or some other uh, uh, segment or sect of Christianity. And the majority of of evangelical Christians were shown to be heretics because of their view of Jesus. If we could just recognize how truly important it is to know him. Knowing Jesus is the difference between peace and distress, hope and despair, forgiveness and condemnation. And if in some small measure today, that I could achieve the great goal of my ministry to live for his fame. You know, I put that at the end of everything I send in writing for Jesus' fame. It's not just some fancy, it's not even a fancy tagline. Like, it's not some cliche for me. I don't come here week to week so that you like me. There's a part of me that longs for that. I won't lie. I've been honest about that. Deep in my heart, I long for you to see his fame, to see him as glorious, to turn your heart more fully towards him, that you would seek to to know him and that you would seek to exalt him, that you and I together would make a big deal out of Jesus. In some small measure, we could gain some step in that process today. When we're finished with this passage, I think you'll... You'll be able to say you know him better. But I hope not just because you've added to the list of facts, but because you see him and you're drawn closer to him. So let's, lead, let's read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. It says this, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Let me set the stage. You just kind of jump into the context here. That he has been in Jericho. If you go back, just the, the passage before that, he's taught a parable. And he taught that parable in Zacchaeus' house in Jericho. Or so it seems based off the, off the timeline and the, and the language that, that uh, Luke uses. He's in Zacchaeus' house, staying the night at Zacchaeus' house. Pronounces salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. And then he teaches and prepares people that, hey, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm just 20 miles away. But when I get to Jerusalem, it's not going to be exactly like you expect. 
He's surrounded by people at this point. He's surrounded by crowds. And when he gets finished with this teaching, he gets up and he heads on the the last part of the short journey uh, left to get to Jerusalem. It is time for him to arrive there. And it says, we'll pick it up in verse 29. It says, when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples... Now, here we go again. So he's about 20 miles away in Jericho. He walks about 18 miles. Bethany and Bethpage are about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives is just between him and Jerusalem. He can't see Jerusalem yet. The Mount's there. And he's going to have to go over the Mount of Olives to get to Jerusalem. And while he's getting close, he sends two disciples ahead. And he goes, and he sends them ahead saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you find a colt on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? This must have been a difficult colt to get. Like there's a lot made of tied up colt here, but but this is a process. So so why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, let me just draw something out here before we go any further. This starts with the disciples. This is not the people of the world. This is not the multitude. This is not the people on the fringes. This is not people that are distant. These are people that know Jesus. They go, they follow his command, they obey his command, they get the colt, they bring it back to him, and they put their cloaks on it. He's not riding in a saddle. He's riding bareback other than their cloaks, and then they begin to lay their cloaks on the road in front of the colt. This is his disciples. As he rode along, again, verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks uh, on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And so what you see happen in this moment is that this, this little band of disciples begin to worship and praise Jesus, and then it spreads. Real worship, true worship is infectious. Like it spreads out. And these people who see the glory of Christ, who know him intimately, who have been so close with him, they begin to worship. And then so the whole multitude, and that word, it doesn't tell us exactly how many people it is. But that word multitude of disciples is that there are many, many people there. The roads are full with people who had seen his great works. And they begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Verse 38 saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, the Pharisees, they would have seen this as blasphemy. They are worshiping him. They are praising him as Messiah. They are praising him as king and sent of the Lord God. For the Pharisees, who didn't really know him, They wanted nothing more than these disciples to be silent. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This was a moment that had been ordained before the first tick-tock of the clock. Jesus was going to come. Jesus was going to enter Jerusalem. Jesus was going to be king. And there was nothing that was going to stop this moment. For those that knew him would praise him. And if they didn't, the very creation would cry out. And it's in the midst of this celebration 
that Jesus tops the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley, he sees Jerusalem. And it says in verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know what brings peace. And you did not know that you had been visited by God. This passage is full of contrasting pictures. We're not going to be able to hit on all of them. In fact, the first service, I got to two points and I had to cut it down because this the, well, we'll see what happens here. But, but the reality is, is that, that we can't see all the contrasting pictures. But, but, but man, there is so much contrast going on. I mean, just, just as an example, there's the, 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 the contrast of the, of the reactions to Jesus. There's those that, that have the donkey that respond to him in obedience. And, and, and probably they're in the crowd with the disciples praising Jesus as he comes that way. In contrast to the Pharisees who would just ask them to command them even. Command Jesus of all the nerve to command Jesus to, be, to silence his disciples. But there's also the contrast in moods. I mean, this is a party. Like, this is a celebration of celebrations. This puts every other introduction in all of history, every other entry, every other king, it puts it to shame. These people are full on in celebration mode. And when Jesus tops the mountain, he's not celebrating. But he's weeping. See, it doesn't matter that he told them on a number of occasions that when he got to Jerusalem, death waited for him. It doesn't matter that he had taught them repeatedly that, yes, his kingdom is coming and has come but is not yet come. And so it's come, but it's still to come. It doesn't matter that he had helped them see that there was a time in the future that it would actually be consummated. It doesn't matter because they didn't see it. They didn't understand it. So just picture this. Thousands upon thousands. So the, so the, so the time is Passover. Like this is the week of Passover, the week before Passover. This is when all the people, that was, Passover is one of three holidays in the Jewish tradition that would have required or, or, or expected all of the men of, of age to come to Jerusalem and be a part of the ceremony. So this would have been hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands. There's been estimates that maybe there was 200,000 people on the street that day. We don't have any way of knowing. But the road from Bethany and Bethpage to Jerusalem was full of people coming from the north, coming to the temple, coming to the city in which the, was the center of their faith and their worship. And here's Jesus coming. And, and let me just broaden it out just a little bit further for you. It doesn't address this in our passage. Luke doesn't even handle it. But just a couple of weeks before, in the city of Bethpage, in the village of Bethpage, Jesus had been there because Mary and Martha summoned him to come. Because Lazarus was sick. And he waits. 
and he lets Lazarus die, and he walks into the village, and he says, bring me to the tomb, and, and he goes to the tomb, and in front of all the witnesses there, he calls Lazarus out of the grave, and the dead man rose and walks out. And it says in John chapter 15, it tells us that the, that the people there that watched it began to believe in him. And so Jesus, is, the popular opinion has begun to swung back away from what the leaders had been telling them. And, and, and it begins to swing back towards Jesus. It tells us that the, that, the, that the crowds began to believe in him. And it was so stark, it was such a strong picture that, that, that the Pharisees began then, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they began then to seek to kill Jesus. But they, began to, they began to plan to kill him. And they didn't want to just kill Jesus because if Jesus got killed, then Lazarus is still walking around. The testimony of Jesus' power, they, they seek to kill Lazarus. This is a big deal. And so here are these people, these newfound, these newfound disciples, these people who had seen Jesus raise him from the dead, joining in with the multitude of the disciples. And then it's not just this multitude of disciples that, that, that had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Remember what we've studied in Luke. Just a few passages before Walking into Jericho, surrounded by the crowds, and a blind man cries out, Have mercy on me! In this crowd of people, this crowd of people as travelers going to Jerusalem that have seen and heard about what Jesus has done, this crowd of people that include the people that had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, includes this blind man who had been made to see. And in this crowd of people likely is a man named Zacchaeus, who just a couple of days before this, had been saved by Christ when Christ set, went into Jericho and invited himself into his house. And certainly there are these 12, these people that know Jesus. And they're worshiping. They're moved and they're excited and filled with knowledge of him. And Jesus topping the mountain. And at least, I, I, I don't know what was going on on the way up, but on the way down, when he sees the city, he weeps. What a contrast. And it's not just a few little tears. Like, I, I'm glad they didn't just say that Jesus cried because that's, not a, that's a word we use like, you know, when a movie strikes us the, wrong, or the, the right way or maybe the wrong way, depending on your perspective. We cry a little bit. You know, we, our eyes well up with tears. And he wept. And the word that's behind that in the original language speaks of not just crying tears, but, 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 but being broken or being uh, uh, fully involved. His, his whole body fully involved with mourning. He's weeping, he's sobbing, he's wailing. It's hard for us to imagine Jesus like this, right? Because I think we, we picture Jesus as this steady, still man that just kind of walks through and says a few things here and there because of the, 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 the bullet-pointed way that we read through the Gospels. But he's feeling this. He's weeping and he's mourning and he's looking on Jerusalem and he's, and he's lamenting about the destruction that comes to them. He feels it. All the while being surrounded by people who praise and worship him. As this scene unfolds in the midst of all these contrasts that we are able to see our Savior, our King Jesus, 
Do you know him? Let me just show you what I mean. To know Jesus is to know both his humility and glory. To know Jesus is to know both his humility and glory. We've, we've seen his humility repeatedly demonstrated throughout this gospel. Luke has pointed that out over and over. We go back to the blind man that he, re, that he healed in Jericho. is just a perfect example of that. The crowds are surrounding Jesus and the blind man hears something going on. And he's like, what is happening? And they tell him this Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, Jesus, son of David, crying out, have mercy on me. And when Jesus has him come, he doesn't say, what do you need or, or, or he, I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't demand anything of the blind man. He says, what can I do for you? I mean, this man, Jesus, the, the God-man in flesh, who, who over and over had demonstrated his authority, who over and over had demonstrated his power, who over and over had shown that he taught and spoke the words of God, this man, Jesus, took on the role of a servant. And even in this moment, on this entry, he doesn't climb onto a horse that's going into the city to crush his foes. He sends his disciples to get a colt, Luke says. In the other accounts, in Matthew, for example, we find out that it's the colt, the foal of a donkey. A fresh one. No one had ever used it. Not a horse that's saddled with prestige. He didn't, he didn't send ahead and say, hey, prepare for me a party. He didn't say, go ahead of me and get the ribbons hanging on the road and, 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 and go ahead of me and draw the people out and make them ready to celebrate me. He comes gently and humbly into this city. But the humility, it goes even further than what we can see on the surface. It's not just what he's doing that demonstrates his humility. It's the heart that's underneath of it. Jesus rejects the show of power and instead seeks to obediently fulfill all that's been prophesied about him. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal the of a donkey. He told his disciples that, that, hey, when I go into Jerusalem, everything that's been prophesied about me is going to be fulfilled. Everything that the prophets has written is going to be fulfilled. And here it's happening. It's happening, and he's humbly submitting to the plan that had been placed hundreds and thousands, and, and, and before the foundation of the world, he's humbly walking in obedience to this plan. He's not saying, I'm going to go my own way, I'm going to do my own thing. He's not saying, hey, I, I've got a better way, I, I'll figure this out on my own. I'm going to bring in a stallion, I'm going to suit it up with a fancy saddle, and I'm going to put on some armor, and I'm going to go into battle, and I'm going to bring it against Jerusalem. He humbly submits to the plan that eternity had set for him. And you might say, well, you know, he's kind of doing that on his own. Like he's, that's a self-fulfilled prophecy. Like he can make that happen. You know, we can make that argument. He didn't have to do that, right? No, he did. The truth is, though, that every prophecy with Christ is ultimately a self-fulfilled prophecy. He's the one that knew what was going to happen. 
He's the one that submitted to allow nails to be driven through his hands and his feet. He's the one that allowed himself to be beaten and bloodied. He's the one. You see, he didn't lose anything. He didn't accidentally mistake or, or, or mess up his plan. He didn't in some way take a wrong turn. In every way, he was submitting to the power of God, his father. That the prophet's And all that they had written would be fulfilled. And so even this, the reality is if he had walked in or rode in on a horse, it would have have removed him from the running. He would not be king if he had not submitted to the plan even in this. Then he would have no reason to submit to to the hands of his accusers or his executioners. Because if everything wasn't fulfilled... He wasn't the king that had been told to come. He's humble. Not only do we see this humility, this this humbling of himself, this lowering of himself, we see him receive the glory due his name. This is shocking when you think about it because we don't achieve glory in this world by humility, do we? No. No. Marketing experts will tell you every, at every turn you're supposed to go out there and make a name for yourself. Make sure people know about you. Pump yourself up. Show yourself to be approved. Make sure that people see all the best in you. Humility is weakness. It, it demonstrates that, that, that we're not strong. But not in Jesus. In whose humility we also see his glory. To this point, Jesus has withdrawn. Like this is, this, is, this is a point where he is beginning to receive exactly what's due him. To this point, he's withdrawn when the crowds are surrounding around him and they're seeking to put him in, enthrone him as king, or when they're seeking to go ahead and kill him because they don't like him, he withdraws. He tells people who have, worked, who, who have received his power to, hey, don't go around telling everybody what happened for you. Keep it on the down low. When it doesn't happen, the crowds are swarming all around him everywhere he goes anyway. But now, instead of withdrawing, he receives his glory. He receives the praise. And and, and not just does he receive it, but he affirms it. When the Pharisee says, hey, shut them up, he says, absolutely not. This is exactly what's meant to happen. And if if they fall silent, the rocks will cry out. And here's this moment, this moment where, where Christ, the humble king, on the foal of a donkey rides in and the people see his glory and cry out. Luke says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew records them saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark writes, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. John writes, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. What was common in the worship was they recognized him to be the son of David, the Messiah who had been promised. They recognized him to be the king that had been promised, the one who was going to come in and rule over Israel, the one who they'd been waiting on that would establish his eternal throne in the line of David. And they praised him and they worshiped him and they recognized that God had sent him. And the Pharisees, they were like, no, shut them up, be quiet. All of these phrases being called out 
for miles. People coming and swarming and throwing their coats on the road in front of him. And Matthew tells us that they broke palm fronds and laid them on the road. And people would walk in, and so the coal wasn't even touching the ground. He was walking on the cloaks of people and walking on the palm fronds that they had laid in front of him. And the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with it. Because they didn't know him. Do we know him? I mean, as I read these words, as I talk about this moment, what happens in you? Is your heart set aflame with a desire to praise the God who's come? Are you moving with emotion? Do you feel it brimming up inside of you? Do you long to shout out, praise the Lord who has come? Do you know him? I know, I know that the culture of this church is one to be quiet. But can you see that there is no better time to cry out? Do you know Jesus? Do you long to praise him with your words and with your deeds? Let me just prime you for this. This is not a rhetorical question. Do you know Jesus? Absolutely. Thank oh my God. Yes, I know him. I, I get up here and I, get, I, I shout and I get all loud. It's not because I'm angry. It's because I'm so moved by the fact that an eternal God would step out of heaven and walk in front of us. That he would humble himself to work inside of time on our behalf. This eternal God said, I am going to serve you humbly. And as we know him in his humility, we get to see and experience his glory. Do you know him? Do you long to worship him? We talk about this weekly. We talk about this regularly. We are people who worship to lead others to worship. Is our worship of Christ infectious? Now, I'm curious, and I think about our city often, and I think about the state of things in our city. And I wonder if our city is where it is because we have fallen silent. And only the rocks are crying out. Do we know him? What's the life you live outside of these walls? Tell you. Do we know him? Do we see his humility? And experience his glory? Or is it just a list of facts that don't move us at our core? 
To know Jesus is to know both his humility and his glory. To know Jesus is to know both his justice and his compassion. See, Jesus knew what awaited, for, what awaited him in Jerusalem. He'd been prophesying that. He'd been saying that all along. He knew that even as these were gathering and singing his praises, that he would be rejected. The ultimate rejection in the cross was coming. Just a week away, just a few days away. So as the city comes into view, he wimps and he weeps and he laments. Now this people, these, these people that he looks down on, they deserve the destruction that's coming to them. He, they deserve the prophecy that he brings against them. They do not deserve his protection. They've rejected him, and that cross is going to demonstrate the rejection at its ultimate end, at its furthest end. The best thing they could do to fully reject him was to kill him and rid themselves, or at least in their mind, rid themselves of this man, Jesus. And his reasoning for this judgment, his reasoning, his reasoning for this prophecy summarized in two ways. First in verse 42, he says, they did not know what made for peace. They didn't know what made for peace. And he said, if you just knew... If you just understood, says you, in verse 44, you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know that God has visited you. You did not even recognize him walking among you. But he is the way of peace. Jesus is the way of peace. He is God's plan for peace between God and man and man to man. He is the way that God has intended always to bring peace. This was affirmed in the praises of the people. When they said, glory to God, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace, peace in heaven. Jesus was the way that that was to happen. It was affirmed by the angels as as a multitude filled the sky and they sang to the angels, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. This was God's plan for peace is Jesus coming. And they totally missed it. They totally misunderstood it. They totally went away from it. They totally rejected it. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. They did not know that he was God visiting them. They accused him of demonic powers and blasphemy. They accused him. I mean, the blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked. They couldn't deny his power. Like, we can deny power today, like, all right, but, but, because realistically... When your back hurts and you go to the faith healer and you walk out and your back doesn't hurt all of a sudden, we, we can fake things like that, right? The guy walks in, oh, I've had back pain all my life. Woo, I'm healed. Be healed. And you're knocking people over and they're falling over like dominoes and swinging coats at people and knocking them over. Oh, we're healing people. People walk in with canes that don't, they don't need them, but hey, I'm going to walk in with a cane and walk out, walk out without one. I've been healed. No, we can make that stuff up. And I'm not saying that God doesn't heal. I'm just saying that a lot of these people are faking it. But the things he was doing couldn't be faked. Blind people saw. Deaf people heard. Lame people walked. And these things were happening in front of people. Like the the guy whose arm was shriveled up stretches out. And not only does it stretch out, but it has strength. The guy who had been paralyzed, it was lowered through the roof. He says, "Pick pick up your mat and go home. The guy picks up his mat. He doesn't just all of a sudden just, he doesn't have to learn to walk. He stands up and strength is in his legs and, and he has balance to, to walk and not just balance to walk and strength to carry himself, but he bends over and he picks up his mat and he goes home. These are miracles that just can't be faked. 
Since they couldn't fake them, they sought to discredit him, and they, they accused him of demonic power and blasphemy. So Jesus had every right to prophesy these things. He had every right and had the authority to bring this against them. You have rejected me. You will be destroyed. Stone not left on stone, even the children within you. This is harsh judgment. I don't know if you caught that or not when we read through it. This is harsh judgment. But when he said it, he didn't look down his nose. He didn't pick up his chin and look down his nose in disdain. He wept. It's another shocking thing in our culture. The justice, like, oh, they're getting what they deserve. I don't have to care about this. Look at these sinful folks around here. To hell with them. I don't need to be after them. I don't need to go their way. I don't need to bother myself with them. That's justice. Jesus mourned and lamented and wailed and sobbed. His body racked with convulsions of grief. Because he knew what was coming for these people. And I wonder, do we know him so well that he has invaded us so that we act in this way too? I mean, I, I, I saw something a couple of years ago that just broke my heart for Springfield. You'll remember, for, for those of you here, that were living here at this time, the city council determined that they wanted to uh, add some, some language in our city statutes for sexual orientation, gender identity, right? And so, so the, uh, the, the LGBT community, they were excited about this because suddenly they felt like that they were being noti- noticed or, or no longer just ostracized. They felt like that they had a home here, and so they were celebrating this. And, and alongside that celebration was these, these people, a group of Christians, who, who, who decided, well, we're going to get a petition signed because the city council just shouldn't be doing this they should allow us to vote on it. And, and that's the way democracy works. So I, 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 don't, I, I, wouldn't, even, I, I wouldn't even say that that's, that's wrong. We, we have a voice. We get to say things and, and we get to shape our government. So it's a right way to do it. So they get together and they start asking for petitions to be signed. And, and enough people sign these petitions that it ends up on the ballot. And the city votes. And the majority of people here voted to have those things rescinded. And so all of that language that's added was removed. But that's not what really broke my heart. That's democracy. That's the government we live in. That's people governing themselves, making their opinions known. What really bothered me was that night, as the votes came in, KY3 was at the headquarters of the organization that pressed for this and was really pushing the vote out there getting the signatures on the, uh, on the, gosh, I can't even think of the word now, getting all the signatures to get it to a vote. And, and they were advertising and pushing for, their, for, for the vote to go their way. And they 
They didn't have any problem letting people know that they were a Christian organization. And whether these people were Christian or not, as KY3 panned the room, the assumption is that they're all Christian. And in the midst of a city that's felt torn in two over this vote and a people who just heard that what they felt like was finally a recognition for themselves, there's Christians or supposed Christians jumping up and down, clapping and cheering. We didn't win anything that night. Makes me sick to my stomach that we would think on people with such disdain that we would feel so poorly towards someone else that's not different than us because we've changed ourselves but because we've been changed that someone is not different than us that deserves the same thing as us that we would stand in this level of judgment that we would cheer these kinds of things See, before we sit in too high and mighty a position, we need to recognize this. We deserved his justice, but we received his compassion. There, there, there's a nuance here. There's, there's something you can just read past it if you, if, you, if, you, if you don't pay close attention. Would you... Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You know what separates us from everyone else? You know what enables us to know Jesus, that he's the way of peace, that he's the way that God has visited? The veil has been removed from our eyes. How in the world could we stand and look on anyone in disdain? How can we not be brokenhearted over the sin of people? How can we look at people whose sin bothers us so deeply because we're so drawn to and supportive of the righteousness of Christ, but then turn and look at them in judgment when that is who we were? J.C. Ryle writing about this, he says, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. But a man of the spirit is very unlike David who said rivers of water run down my eyes because man keep not your law. He is very unlike Paul who said I have great heaviness and continual sorrow for the heart of my brethren. Above all he is very unlike Christ. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. You see, in this moment of celebration, in this moment where the contrast of heaven and earth is so clear, we learn much about Jesus. But I just wonder, and really I just want to ask, is this just something you add to the list of your facts or do you know him? 
And does this draw you to know him more deeply? So I've got a whole other point that breaks out into four or five subpoints. But my desire is not just to give you more information. My desire is for us just to sit in the presence of this king who came, demonstrated both humility and glory, and demonstrated both justice and compassion. So I would just ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, sit in his presence and think on him. Do you know him? Is your heart aflame with his glory? Are you bursting at your seeing, the, the, the seams of your soul to, to sing his praises, to cry out, praise the Lord? Do you know him like this? Do you know him so closely that you know what you deserve from him? And yet, what you received anyway. Do you know him? Knowing Jesus is the difference between peace and distress, hope and despair, forgiveness and condemnation. Do you know him? Father, help us know your son. Help us see him fully unveiled in front of us. Help us to know him deeply and intimately. to, To know his attributes, to know his tenderness and his compassion, to know his righteousness and justice, to know his glory and his humility. Help us to know him, to feel him, to experience him, to be moved by him. Help us, Father, to know And where we don't, would you convict us? Would you lead us to this place that we can't? And Father, if there's one, even one, among us today that would rather be silent because they don't know him and would rather us be silent because they don't know him. Would you open their eyes to the prophecy that he speaks? Would you warn them of the destruction that is coming? That they might fall in repentance and turn and worship and praise your son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.